in the vestry before we came down, we were talking about how you greet people when you come into church. And we were saying that in some churches, the minister will say to the people at the start of the service, the Lord be with you, and the people reply, and also with you. And it's just a kind of a way of saying hello to each other in a kind of Christian context. So just for change, let's do that this morning. The Lord be with you. Some words from the letter to the church at Colossae. To the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father. In your prayers, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You have heard of this hope before the word of sorry you've heard of this hope before in the word of truth the gospel that has come to you just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world so it has been bearing fruit among you yourselves from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God so let's come to that God in prayer Let us pray together. God of hopefulness, who in love conceived creation with all its wonder and diversity, who delighted in all that you had made and entrusted it to human care, we, your creatures, Pause to marvel at the mystery of such faith in us. Granted freedom to choose how to employ the resources of the planet on which we live. Permitted to determine the course of our own lives. Entrusted with the well-being and employment of all that is. Minerals, plants and animals. Holy, hopeful God. This is too much for us to understand because we know only too well our own shortcomings. God of faithfulness, who despite our faithlessness never gives up on us, who in love shared our finitude being born as one with us and dying for us. We, your children, pause to marvel at the mystery of such love for us. We admit that we have not always used our freedom wisely or well, that our actions have damaged not only us, but also the world of which we are a part Yet, in Christ, you freely forgive us for the damage we have wrought on your creation. Holy, faithful God, this is beyond our comprehension, because we know only too well our own lovelessness. God of loveliness whose hopefulness and faithfulness know no bounds, who creates and recreates all things without limit, 
who longs to restore and renew us where we ache and break, who seeks to bring the whole of creation to its glorious fulfillment. As we worship you, as we experience the assurance of your gracious forgiveness, as we rest in the embrace of your love, so may we grow in faith, hope and love to the glory of your name, one God, forever and ever. Amen. We have three scripture readings this morning. Uh, the first taken from the first book in uh, the Old Testament, or the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, Genesis 1, chapter 1. I'll be reading all scripture passages from the New Revised Standard Version. Verses 26 to 31 in the first chapter. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the living things that move on the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. We move over to the New Testament in the fourth gospel, John chapter 19, beginning at the second half of verse 16. So they took Jesus and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side, with Jesus between them. Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had finished the wine, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
And finally, we move from the Alpha to the Omega, Revelation chapter 21, first seven verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this. For these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Today is the last of our series of services thinking about the Bible. We spent quite a bit of time thinking about the way we approach the Bible in terms of its authority in shaping our discipleness, discipleship, and also our awareness of the questions we can ask helpfully about such ancient writing. We've seen how it's a mixture of stories that delight us and stories that disturb us. We've been asked to think how we choose what it is we read and what it is we avoid. We have been reminded that some of the greatest heroes of faith had feet of clay, and yet God didn't give up on them or on the whole enterprise of creation. We've been encouraged to think that this story is more wonderful and also more worrying than perhaps we had ever imagined I think we've had some fun along the way. I certainly have. And I hope that we've found some encouragement for our lives and some challenges for our thinking. But at the end of the day, there remains a kind of a so what question. Knowing a lot about the Bible and even knowing a lot of the Bible is all fine and good. But if it doesn't inform and inspire our everyday lives, then... So what? I don't think there are any easy answers to that question. Or at least I suspect there are easy answers to that question, but they're not always going to be terribly helpful or useful. I pondered this so what question a lot in the last couple of weeks, in various stages of brain mush, it has to be said. And it seems to me that there are a lot of interconnected ideas that emerge. And I'm hoping we can explore a bit of that this morning. 
it hasn't been easy because all sorts and sizes of ideas have just flooded into my brain. And it's been great fun for me to play with them. But it's not been easy to come up with a nice, coherent sermon, so I'm sorry about that. It's all a bit like one of those Rubik's Cubes with different colours and you twist it and turn it and you try to make sense of it. I've never managed to do a Rubik's Cube in my life. Um, you can take them apart and cheat, but uh, it's, you get different patterns. Or perhaps it's like a kaleidoscope, which was one of my favourite toys when I was little. You twist it and turn it and you look through it and all sorts of beautiful patterns appear. And then you twist it again and something else comes so this might be a bit of a muddle, and I apologise if it's a bit of a muddle, but I hope you'll capture some of the excitement of the mystery and majesty of the Bible, what it shows us about God, what it shows about God's relationship with creation as a whole and with people in particular. And as these three readings that we've heard will help us to catch a glimpse of that God, the God who is before time, and in time and beyond time, the God who creates and redeems and sustains, the God who is the source of faith and hope and love. And so I want to play with some of those ideas a little bit. You've got a bit of paper you can take home if you like, or not, if you don't, that's fine. Do with it whatever you think is appropriate. But some thoughts about God that seem to come to me as we try to grasp what it is to live in the light of the book we call the Bible. I chose the three readings we had deliberately, and it was great the way that Andrew presented them for us because he'd grasped and expressed some of that overarching thing of these three readings. We had the creation story, the story of the beginning. We had part of the crucifixion story, the kind of centre hinge point of the Christian story, and we had the revelation vision a glimpse of beyond the end of time. You see, part of the mystery of who God is is that God is before time and within time and after time. God cannot be bound by time. God created time. And also, in Jesus specifically, God enters time. If we'd started at the beginning of Genesis, we would have had a pointer to this. In the beginning, God. Before all things, God. Not God was before all things in a sense that there was a time before time, but actually as Moses was told by God, my name is, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. God is. God will be. God is somehow beyond time. Not just watching it from outside, but somehow time exists within God. You can't ever quite grasp what it means for God to be beyond time. You can't explain it. And yet once you suddenly grasp something of it, oh, this was my experience anyway, it kind of blows your mind. That God is beyond time and after time and before time. 
and God is here and now within time. Right at the heart of our Christian story is a story of Jesus. And this is a story that should blow our minds. God chooses to enter the limitations of human experience. And yet at the same time, this beyondness of God is still there. What is called by some the Christ event, the events of Calvary, become a kind of hinge point of the whole of human history as we experience it. There was a time before Calvary, there is a time after Calvary. And yet here's part of the mystery. It acts backwards and it acts forwards. Although, humanly speaking, there was a point in time when this happened It's not constrained to that place and that time. God transforms the whole of human history before and after events on a hill 2,000 years ago. I think the fourth gospel account of the crucifixion with the last words of Jesus saying, Tetelestai, it is finished, it is accomplished, points us not just to a moment in time, but also to something that happens in God. In God, in that moment, and yet beyond that moment, something happens. And then we get that vision of a new creation in Revelation, perfectly restored and remade. No sorrow, no suffering. And time as we know it is no more. Here is a glimpse, just a tiny glimpse, of what people call the eschaton the horizon of hope towards which we are facing, the dream of what it might be like when the work of Calvary and the constraints of human time, constraints of time, finally coincide, when that accomplishedness of the cross finds its fulfilment in everyday experience, because we know that now it isn't perfectly experienced. I think this sense of God's nature and God's relationship with creation are essential to living a Bible-inspired life because it affects how we see God, it affects how we see creation, and it affects how we see ourselves. One of the central tenets of Christian thinking is this idea of God as Trinity, three persons in one person. It is a mystery, a mystery in every sense of the word. It's helpful because it allows us not to understand, to say it's a mystery. But it can also be a hindrance because we just kind of avoid it. Well, I don't understand it. It's just a mystery. Sometimes when we talk about the Trinity, I think we fall into a trap of having three people rather than three persons, and each of these three people has a separate job. Let me explain. This is how it's often understood within churches. There is God, the creator, the one who made things, and that is God the Father, God the Father that does the making. Then there is God, the redeemer, the one who does the saving bit, and that's God the Son. 
And then there is God the sustainer, the one who keeps all things together. And that's God the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm sorry, that's not what the Bible says. Actually, we have a God who creates, redeems, and sustains. The Genesis story, we have God, the Father, who speaks the word, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is hovering over creation. All three persons of God are involved in every aspect of what God does. God is not to be confined to some kind of functional thing. God is active. God is not a being. God is kind of a doing, if you like. God is creating and redeeming and sustaining. God can't be neatly categorized. And if that doesn't blow your mind, then I'm doing a rubbish job out here because it blows mine. We have a God before, within, and beyond time who is creating and redeeming and sustaining but you know, there is so much more to God than that. And the Bible points us to another way of understanding God. It's the way that Paul wrote about in the church, to the church at Corinth, and actually to the church at Colossae, which we opened the service with. Because in God are faith and hope and love. You find that all the way through the Bible, the creation story, There's one thing that is absolutely certain about that. However it happened, and we'll probably never know exactly how it happened, without God, there will be nothing. God didn't need creation, but God not only dared to imagine it, but to do it. I read the creation stories in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 this week, and I found myself thinking, I wonder how God felt What's God thinking about at the start of time? Because Genesis tells us that God was thrilled to bits with creation. The vast universe, that's great. The celestial bodies, the stars and the planets, wow. The air, the rocks, the water, the sea creatures, the birds, the plants, the land animals, the human beings, God loved it. And God had got great hopes for it. God entrusted creation to human beings. God said, here you are. This is for you. And God had faith in humanity and indeed in the whole of creation. That plants would provide food. That animals would populate the earth. And that people would enjoy this Amazing creation. Do you know, I think there's a bit of a naivety in God, humanly speaking here. Full of love and hope and faith and excited about this creation. And you know, as we go through the Bible, I think that is still there in all that God does and God is. By the time of Jesus, life on earth was anything but that lovely picture of creation. The innocence had long gone. Selfishness and sickness and death and destruction have wrought havoc for thousands of years. And yet here's the amazing thing. God still loves creation. God still hopes for the kingdom to find expression. 
And God still has faith in this enterprise of a world entrusted to human beings. The cross surely is right at the centre of that faith, hope and love. A love that draws into itself all the hurt and sorrow, all the anger, all the pain, all the bitterness that will ever be, that ever was. And hopes that through this, through one man dying in this way, history will be changed. And of course, the hope finds expression in the resurrection and in the vision of what's to come. God has enough faith to enter the darkness and absorb the darkness, confident that light is stronger. And so we get that amazing vision of the new heaven and new earth. God's faith, hope and love find their consummation because despite everything that says to the contrary, despite the things that suggest to us that hope and love and faith don't work, God never gives up. God continually loves, has faith and hopes. God continually creates, redeems and sustains. So that tells us something about God, but what about us, actually? We come back to that so what question. If the Bible tells us about God, what does it mean for us? I think what we need to do is to go back to those stories and see that there is a connection between God, the creator, between the universe, the creation, and people, the creatures, part of creation granted, but somehow we see them as separately, separate from them. There is a connection right from the start between the God who creates everything and people and the planet. John 3.16. God so loved, not the people, the world. And in fact, not the world, but the cosmos, if you use the Greek. God loved the whole creation so much that God in Christ entered creation. Why? To save it, to transform it, to bring it to its fulfillment. When Jesus walked the earth, somebody said to him one day, good teacher, what is the most important commandment? Well, you know the answer as well as I do. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul and spirit. Love your neighbour as you love yourself. Three directions for our love to God, upwards to ourselves, inwards, and to our neighbours, outwards. And I think part of the mystery is we can't care about our neighbours if we don't care about the planet, because our actions that affect the planet affect our neighbours. 
Somehow we have to hold together this mystery of this God and these three directions of our own relating. Time is running out, my brain's gone foot, and you're probably thinking, I wish you'd shut up. But it seems to me that if we live in the light of the Bible and the God who is revealed to us through scriptures, then we need to learn to see the whole of creation the way God sees it, to love it and delight in it. And if we love and delight in the world and the people of the world, that will affect the way we live every day. We need to learn to see people as God sees them. Because that will affect the way we treat them. And we need to learn to see ourselves as God sees us. Because that's going to affect how we think and how we feel about ourselves. You know, I think too many Christians have bad self-esteem. We think we shouldn't care about ourselves. But if God truly loves us, and if we should love our neighbor as we love ourselves, then actually we need to care about ourselves. I think if this book inspires our living, we need to cultivate the characteristics we see in God. If we are made in God's image, and if God is loving and hopeful and faithful, then so should we be. We should dream new dreams, imagine new possibilities, refuse to be overwhelmed by disappointment or rejection or failure. That's a tough call, I know that. But that's the kind of inspiration we should have, that hope is stronger than fear, that love is stronger than hate. That faith is even stronger than doubt. And that one day, one day they will find their fulfillment. You see, Bible-inspired living is not about keeping rules. And it's not about a life free from struggle and pain. Following Jesus is tough. It's hard work. It's demanding. And sometimes there will be questions, sure. But it's characterized by our openness to this God who is eternally loving, eternally hopeful, eternally faithful. We believe and trust in a God whose word guides us in the whole of life. A God whose promises are dependable no matter what life may throw at us. Let us pray. Our Father, we gather again a blend of hearts with a common vision, mission, and goals. We take delight in and never take for granted the privilege of being able to have a little talk with you. You know our hearts, minds, and souls. Our trials are constant, yet we make our approach not foremost with a myriad of requests, but with honor and praise and unbridled gratitude for your incessant sustenance, guidance, and love. We acknowledge you as Lord of all, take comfort in your constant care, and exalt you as our creator, our crutch, our rock. We thank you for hearing and heeding our faintest cry, for the accompanying hope, for always being there for us, and also for just being. 
We thank you for the precious gift of life, while we pray for the wider world as it moves on with progress in one camp and tribulations in another. We pray for all those, including ourselves, who know you, but at times take their eyes off you. At the times when you seem absent or so distant, it is indeed not you who moved away, but us. Dear Father, we are elated for those who have recently embraced you, and we are elated at the prospect of those who soon will. We pray for those to whom you are foreign, that they will encounter the wonder of you. We pray for those who have outright rejected you, such as the escalating number of youngsters of high school age. We must trust that they will find themselves to you somehow, some way. We offer prayers for church congregations, small and large, near and far, that they avoid insularity and embrace outreach, that they share and spread the real news, the good news, the best news of all. We continue to pray fervently for this elusive thing called world peace, that your name will strike that desired chord with all hearts and that peace ensue. Father, we also pray for our immediate communities, that citizens scurrying around, caught up in rush hours and rush days, once or twice in a while, take a step back, consider the wonders of creation, and meditate on you. That institutions such as families and schools seek you as chief advisor for the challenges of today. We pray for the police and teachers and other authorities who appear to have lost respect once part and parcel of their roles. That students facing not only academic pressures, but looming financial challenges seek you. That overseas students in these northern climes seek your comforting nature as they grapple with homesicknesses, sickness, as well as sunlight deprivation and the, the depression to which it often leads. That our universities will continue to be vehicles of valuable information and breakthrough research. We pray for all attempts at interfaith dialogue, such as that upon which Glasgow Museums is about to embark, mindful of the possibility of unsavory behavior at interfaith fora, and that the various faiths extend their love, which is the common denominator. Dear forgiving Father, we recognize that there is nothing new under the sun, and as social and pleasantries are increasingly exposed, we pray for rehabilitation and redemption. And in the time of trouble and sickness, which will surely pass away, we ask for strength to cope and surmount. In the happy times, we thank you. Our pressing desire and hope in this hour, Father, is that many turn and keep their eyes upon you. Our pressing plea in this hour is for faith and trust that you will be with us, Father, now and forevermore. Amen.